Sandy Claus song with Yodel, sung by George P. Watson, Edison Records. <laughs> Regular Sandy Claus, and I love good gals and boys. When I come around at Christmas time to give you all some toys. Now I've got almost everything, so if you understood, I look down in my little sack and see what I can give. One, two, three, four. To you and all the ships at sea, I'm Ted Green, 15-year tech industry veteran, and you're listening to Bolt Bucket, a waggish gab and sometimes rant on technology in our lives. From mankind's past, the present, and our future. Dad, can you fix my cyborg? It's Christmas here at the Digimechanica studio, and that means it's time for the first ever Bolt Bucket Christmas special. But there'll be no claymation Sam the Snowman voiced by Burl Ives, no Susie and Grinch quotes, no sappy miracle on 34th Street. No, this Christmas episode is the story about a Christmas past and a must-have gift, mostly for boys, about a handheld electronic device that to this day stands mighty tall in the pantheon of personal electronics history. A mobile electronic device that made sounds, had a screen to view games, and provided hours of nonstop entertainment until the battery ran out. A game that was an absolute must-have for American kids, oh, I'd say age 8 through college and even beyond that. In fact, if you didn't get this gift for Christmas, you didn't even dare show up at school after Christmas break. It's what many tech historians now consider to be, per the concept of handheld digital entertainment, the first iPod. The year was 1977, the year that brought us the first Star Wars film. New York's Son of Sam murder spree was the terror story of the year, all while the city rolled out its I Love New York TV ads. Farrah Fawcett ruled the TV and dorm room poster sales. And speaking of the telly, Chia Pet began interrupting our TV viewing habits that year. But all of that paled in comparison to the must-have gift for Christmas 77. Gather around the holiday Yule Log, folks, and I'll tell you the story about Mattel Electronics' 1977 handheld game, Electronic Football. Mattel's Electronics Football was originally released in June of 1977 and was the second game in what would be a series released by Mattel and initially sold through the retailer Sears. Technically, Auto Race was their first handheld game in the series, but its sales were, uh, to be diplomatic absolutely awful. Oddly, after less than 100,000 electronic football units were made and quickly sold, Sears, using a computer model based on initial sales figures, what's now called Business Intel or Business Analytics, determined that the game would not be a big seller, and most of the production for football was stopped. But six months on, it became obvious to Sears that their computer-driven estimates were wrong and production was started up again, reaching extraordinary levels. As many as 500,000 units a week were flying off the shelves by mid-February 1978. The game retailed for $40 in 1970s dollars, equivalent to about $165 today. The Mattel Electronics Football Form Factor and Function, otherwise known as what the damn thing looked like and how it worked. With the decal on its beige casing, Remember, this is the 1970s, so if you've got electronics inside something, it's got to be wrapped in a beige case. 
with a decal on it reading Mattel Electronics Football. It was a handheld calculator-sized attempt to electronically reenact the game of American football. With a small oval in the form of a stadium located across the top of the handheld, the field of play was the screen in the center of said stadium across the top of the device. The device had six buttons in the space below the field, and this allowed users to command the ball carrier's direction, dodging the computer program defense. Using a combination of the up, down, and side-to-side -side directional buttons, players would make their way across the playing field onto pure 1970s digital football glory. Six points in the end zone. Players were represented by a red dot. This is the 1970s. What were you expecting, a holodeck? The game followed the basic rules of professional American football, simplified considerably. An onboard timer allowed only a 12-minute total game time, with real football game-like four quarters, but at three minutes each. There were four downs and 10 yards to a down. A kick option was available. But the ability to pass the ball was not on this, the first version of Mattel's runaway hit. Various difficulty settings could be selected, and score and status buttons help players keep track of their progress. But as is often the case with breakthrough technologies, more important than the specs was this first handheld game's cultural impact. Depending on your current age assignment, you're either young enough or old enough to have been around in 1977, and likely remember this phenomenon. And it was just that, a runaway smash, much like an Apple product today. It really was the first all-consuming, head-down-while-you-walk-into-a-pole handheld device. Got one hour of detention for tossing a hard-boiled egg across the cafeteria at Jeffrey the Jerk as revenge for being mega-wedgied in the locker room? Bring your Mattel football game. Suddenly, detention just couldn't be long enough. A notable function on the Mattel electronic football game was the ability to not only play against the onboard computer, but to play against a friend. So if you didn't get one for Christmas in the years 77 through 79, you could beg the kid who did get one to be his opponent. This, of course, never ended well because the kid who did get the game for Christmas had been practicing against the game's onboard computer over the holiday break. So by the time everyone was back in school, January 1-ish, this kid was Walter Payton and you were the local community college backup safety, digitally speaking. In fact, so popular was this game that I distinctly remember one kid charging other kids who did not get the game for Christmas 50 cents per game to get a chance just to hold this thing in your hand and get the digital bejesus beaten out of you in a head-to-head -head matchup with this 11-year-old Al Davis. Talk about business instincts. The kid was pimping his Mattel Electronics football for Christ's sake. My guess is that kid's now likely either pushing shamwells on late-night TV or maybe your local congressman. Thanks to the astounding success of Mattel's electronic football, the toy company would release a sequel for the 1978-79 season aptly named Football 2. And to the delight of 12-year-old Mattel electronic football addicts, junkies, and pimps everywhere, this one had a new button, the long-desired pass function. Yeah! Mattel scored another winner in the world of electronic games a success that would survive until the advent of Mattel's 1980 in television, which would kick off the era of true, lifelike-ish video game console play, much like we have today with products like Xbox. Now, in the true spirit of capitalism, Mattel Electronics football competitors soon followed their lead, and 
So did an army of attorneys claiming patent infringement, most notably Coleco's Coleco football and Bambino's superstar football. And Mattel's attorneys lost. Now, for you geeks out there that want to know what was under the hood of the Mattel Electronics football game, here's the skinny and all that. The game was invented by George Close and Richard Chang. The one millionth Mattel Electronics football game was presented to Howard Cohn, the founder of Mattel's electronics division, and that was given to him by Rockwell Microelectronics. That's the company that made the innards or the guts or under the hood of the Mattel Electronics football game. And that all happened on December 13th of 1978. The game was programmed by Mark Lesser. And Mark would be your 1970s version of today's code jockey. Mark is, was a 1960s era MIT graduate and was initially a circuit designer for Rockwell and readily admits that these games were originally just converted calculators. Nothing special at all. Again, remember, this is the 1970s, so the programming for this game was done on a walk-in refrigerator-sized, probably diesel-powered, good old IBM punch card machine. In fact, with just 511 bytes of ROM storage, the Mattel Electronics football game was only able to calculate up to a 90-yard football field, not the 100 yards as is the true American football field size. So if you still have one of these games in cold storage, take it out and check it out. Yeah, look at that. Just 90 yards. I'll be damned. Mark Lesser went on to do other work, notably at Parker Brothers, where he designed the sequel to Frogger, called Frogger 2. Mark later worked solo only and was the lead consultant on early versions of now legendary games such as Madden Football, NHL, and NCAA College Football. Lastly, speaking of Madden, 1977's real Super Bowl, Super Bowl XI, saw John Madden's Oakland Raiders handily defeat Bud Grant's Minnesota Vikings 32-14, with the televised game called by Kirk Gowdy and Dandy Don Meredith. But for the first time since the advent of television, most kids were staring at the digital device in their hands, and not the television screen. That's the Christmas Garland Festoon Bucket of Bolts on Mattel's 1977 Electronic Football. I've got to give huge props and a big thank you to the following websites for their much-needed help in this trip down handheld electronics memory lane. If you're looking for more on Mattel Electronics Football and the complete retro handheld game scene, check out handheldmuseum.com. Also, check out Scott Stilfen's uh, website, 2600connection.com. It's a site dedicated to the Atari 2600, but he's got a lot of other ancillary stuff there, and it all weaves right into the same electronics gaming time period. Very interesting. Check out Scott Stilfen's site, 2600connection.com. 2600connection.com. And finally, if you're really into this stuff, or you're curious, you want to know more, check out Zach Penn's excellent documentary feature film. It's called Atari Game Over. Zach crafts a fascinating look at the birth of the Atari game scene, and I'm not sure if Zach intended this, but by default, Zach actually ends up revealing the first software developer scene as it applies to the entertainment business. Zach gives us a true Shakespearean tragedy as he shows us Atari's birth, how enormous they became, and how fast Atari and the careers of everyone associated with them died a lightning-fast death. I won't spoil the ending, but what happens to Atari's lead gaming developer's career is just jaw-dropping. It's a must-see for all post-grad hotshots starting their real-world tech careers. 
If you'd like more information, or if you have any questions, or if you'd even like to contribute to the Bolt Bucket podcast, you could email me here, ted at boltbucket.net. If you'd like more information on the host, that'd be me, you can check out www.tedgreen.us. And there's no E on the end of green. From the foot of Mount Belzoni, Merry Christmas to everyone. And good night.